Did you want to talk about the weather? <laughs> Emily, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to start talking about the weather? You know, some people, Kate, don't or think talking about the weather is boring. Boring or I want to say the word stereotypical, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, but trite. I personally understand why talking about the weather is a great entry point to conversation. It is something that unites people. Everyone has feelings about the weather. And if everyone is experiencing similar weather, there's something bonding about that. If you're experiencing vastly different weather, there's something at least interesting to talk about in that way. I would say that most of the conversations I start like on meetings, usually on Zoom, maybe you're waiting for somebody. The two things that I bring up in a way that sometimes I wish I didn't are weather and time. So I'll be like, oh my gosh, it's... December 7th. Oh, like date time, yeah. like calendar time. Yeah, like I can't believe 2022 is almost over. Ah, like that. We that's my emails and my Zooms. I do think I will say that I believe weather has gotten more interesting for two reasons. One, it used to be that you would, I mean, I'm going to go way back to probably before my time, but like you're talking about the weather that you're both experiencing at the exact same time. And it's sort of like, yeah, I know. Like, why are we talking about it? And it was usually kind of predictable. Like, it's the summer in Texas. It's hot. Versus now, weather is a little bit more interesting. <laughs> it's true. And the fact that it was 83 degrees in the middle of November in Texas, that, you know, that is at least a conversation. Um, the reason I bring up the weather today is I was sitting outside as the weather changed today, and it was one of the most spectacular experiences of, like, warmth and humidity, and then the skies turned kind of gray, and the wind started to blow, and the chill came, and I got to feel it first, and it was really special. I do really love that feeling. I love when you feel it drop, see that it's going to drop on the nice little weather app, but then actually experience it and go from, uh, you know, wearing tank top in the morning to sweatshirt and cozy socks mm -hmm. in the afternoon, evening. Also, my house is often very cold and I put on cozy socks, even if it's 85 degrees. Off. <laughs> Approved. So there's that. Um, I have no great segue from that know, into this conversation today. I think the great segue is not a segue at all, but is to say that today's panel is presented in partnership with the Muslim Public Affairs Council. Hollywood Bureau. Hollywood Bureau. Well done. Thank you. Otherwise called Impact to us. And they are great partners of ours, and we are very excited to be able to have these conversations. This is third or fourth year with them. Definitely. I mean, 2019, if we didn't do it before 2019, I think 2019 was the first year we did it with them because it was in person and then we had two virtual years yeah. and then this year. Regardless, time. See, <laughs> there's your segue talking about time, the passage of time. There you go. Um, is that hosting these conversations specifically with them is something that we're extremely proud of. And Sue at Impact is just one of our favorite people. And to be able to create combos with them is fantastic. I agree. Uh, Sue O'Beatty, who is our point of contact over at impact but also become a dear friend is the person that helps us craft these conversations and find the right panelist and bring people on board for it and she is just amazing at looking at 
what we want to create, how we want to create a panel and the types of voices we want on a panel and really more than just Muslim representation, which is obviously still very important, but we want to go deeper in our conversations than just that. Right. And so being able to do evolutions of those conversations, that's, I think, where we did start. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you got to start somewhere. And then getting more specific and really talking to our audience, which is consumers and industry and the importance of storytelling and if you don't know already, we've already released some of these, but this is with the syndication project, which is got a mission of advocacy through storytelling. And this all just is a bullseye in that sense. And what's so fun about this panel, even though um, the the people on this panel all represent such great shows and shows we love, like a cast member from Evil and The Blacklist and little a writer-director from Little America, amongst many others. But the thing that I love so much is that Muslim characters across so many shows have uh, become more prevalent in a beautiful way, not starting with, but I feel quite recently with Miss Marvel. Mm-hmm. Did you end up watching it? Uh, I saw the pilot. It's so fun. And to have a teenage protagonist that is Muslim and the journey she goes on and how the story weaves together just being a teenager, but then also dealing with religion and family and culture. Um it's not Muslim, but how like never have I ever, um, how they represent Hinduism. And I just love, I love like how much it's becoming pop culture characters. Mm -hmm. And I know we are lady parts is a smaller show, but we did do a panel on it in 2020 or 2021, uh, which is just such a fun show. And that show is awesome because it shows, I mean, five main characters mm-hmm. that are all Muslim and have very different personalities and the way that they practice their religion and the way that they walk through life and how beautiful that is. You don't just have one Muslim represented in a show and that then represents the whole religion yeah. and culture. It's no, look, there's so many different types of people that need to be represented and you got to start somewhere. I totally agree. From these, I was very excited that Asif Manbi from Evil was on this and his character on the show is well it's about like ghosts and you know yeah, I know evil I know um but he my favorite is that he is a non-believer on the show and like a non-practicing religious person because it's also about religion on the show and he's non-practicing but in real life he told you he is a believer (laughs) I know it is funny because as we all know the person that doesn't watch evil because I am a chicken I did get to meet the evil cast him as well and discussed how the Driscoll is haunted and the Paramount Theater where they were also going to be as haunted Paramount Theater's haunted well all old theaters are haunted literally all of them way to start rumors that's no it's true I you know what (laughs) we can bring on a Paramount staff member to validate this claim and in this this is not on topic we'll come back to it later yeah all completely <laughs> off topic you know how as much as i'm terrified of ghosts i still like to talk about them but yeah um it's so interesting that he gets to represent a lot of different things yeah yeah it is a very dynamic i guess that was my point is that both asif and the character on that show are so dynamic and obviously actors represent things that they are not but that character on the show does so many different things um it's just a really great show for those that don't watch it you should um 
well, I feel like we've rambled a bit, but that, <laughs> but in a good way, it's because when this panel does all the talking that it really needs to. And what we really wanted to present was how proud we are of our partnership with Impact Hollywood Bureau. Yes. Good job. Um, and being able to host these types of conversations. We do have show panels and, and fun panels and industry panels, but these syndication project panels and the importance of representation and the power of story is so at the heart of the conversations we want to host. And I do just want to shout out real fast to Impact and that they are their mission is policy change, mm-hmm. and that is really what they focus on. A lot of the organizations we deal with have different um, priorities. Some are really focused on storytelling. Obviously, the Hollywood Bureau has a specific goal that they are trying to reach in getting these stories into shows, but it really comes down to policy change that helps support Muslims. Yeah. And I think that that's really important to know that that is what their mission is. And I love that we are partnering with them on this and to help fulfill that mission that it's bigger than just representation story that it's actually working towards policy and real changes in our country i agree so with that here is from season 11 creating a critical mass of muslim talent behind and in front of the camera presented by impact hollywood bureau moderated by serene sawoff impact board member so let's jump in. <laughs> um, and this first question is for everyone, okay? We've got a tight panel. So um, the first is, tell us about your journey. What was your journey like? How did you get where you are? How do you impact representation on the series you star in and the ones you write on? And oh, you have five seconds. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's go ahead with uh, Zarka. Can everyone hear me? This is working. Yeah. So I would say it was probably 1995 or 1996. There weren't, I, don't, I, I had not known or heard of Muslims in the media or television or film, so there weren't a lot of role models. And I was trying to figure out how I could even begin this career. And then the Oklahoma bombing happened in the United States, and there were pictures of Muslim suspects on the newspaper. And the next day it was Timothy McVeigh, like overnight. And I thought, oh my God, like the stereotypes of Muslims as terrorists is so strong that all this attention was on this one group and then suddenly it's uh, this white guy. And I thought, and, and, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I, could, I could turn political issues into satires. And I made a short comedy film called Barbecue Muslims where these Muslims are sleeping at night and their barbecue blows up and they're immediately you know, arrested for being Middle Eastern terrorists. <laughs> and of course, I thought it deserved an Oscar. I submitted it to the Toronto <laughs> International Film Festival. And they, I was a student at the Ontario College of Art, I should mention, and, and, the, and there were no actors. They were like my neighbors that I had recruited and my brother. And I got this very angry phone call from the guy who programs films at the, you know, at the Toronto Film Festival. And he goes, listen, there are going to be so many angry filmmakers who have produce technically perfect films, and then there's you who submits this. But we simply can't ignore that we have never seen a comedy about Muslims and terrorism ever. And you are the first one, and we have to let you in based on just the audacity and the originality alone. And he programmed it. And then when I went and I was in the audience, I saw people laughing. And that was the first time it dawned on me that, oh my god, you can write comedy. You can write political comedy in a way that can get people to hear you know, the story about Muslims and Islam that no one's ever done before. So I, but, and he had given me this gift because once you get into the Toronto International Film Festival, in the Canadian system, the way um, it works in Canada is that you can apply for grants. So I started applying for grants and started making other films, Death Threat, Random Check, Fred's Burqa. And then eventually um, 
the National Film Board rescued me and they said, why don't, we know you can make funny films, make something serious. So I made a, a documentary about patriarchy in the mosque culture. And they sent me to the Banff Television Festival and they said, we're gonna pay your way, it's just we're gonna, we're showcasing all our people. And, my, and I said to my friend, why do people go to this festival? And they're like, oh, normally people go to Banff to pitch TV shows. And she's like, you should take advantage of this and come up with a television show. And I said, how do you do that? And she gave me what, you know, a pitch document. She was come up with a log line, characters, an idea. And I did. So from that documentary, I thought, what if there was an imam who was a lawyer, decided to stop being a lawyer, became an imam in a little teeny tiny mosque in the middle of nowhere? Because I live in the prairies and I live in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is above North Dakota. How would that change the dynamic of the mosque? I went there, pitched it, and CBC said, we like this idea. And at the time, CBC wasn't known for massive global hits. They, like Someone said to me, it's just gonna go into development and it'll disappear. But then there was all this attention from around the world. And there were like Muslims comedy, Islam in a mosque, a satire, like there's no way CBC will survive. And we ended up getting the ratings we needed to make it. And it became this massive global hit that CBC, nobody would have predicted that a show about Muslims in the middle of nowhere in Canada would have been the show that launched the network. And from there, it, you know, that's when I started learning the whole issue of being in a writing room, writing, learning the craft, learning episodic television. Anyway, I could go on forever because my story is long, but I want to just, that was, that was the thing that had launched my career. Your turn. Um, <laughs> as you said, I started 30 years ago, so <laughs> buckle in, buckle up. <laughs> but I want to congratulate all the white people that have showed up today <laughs> to learn about Muslims. It's very commendable. You guys are here. <laughs> Um, allies, allies. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a Russell Peters uh, comedy show. Um, <laughs> my story started in, uh, I grew up in uh, the north of England in Bradford and, and, and uh, I was a little kid who wanted to be an actor and, and, and watched Hollywood movies and stuff and then my family moved to America in the 80s, and, um, uh, and I guess my, my, I was sort of working always, I, I, you know, I, I was always doing comedy and, and, and dramatic stuff as well in school and college, and I got a degree in theater and blah, 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 and all of that, and came to New York, and then, uh, and then wrote a one-man show uh, back in the late 90s called Sakina's Restaurant, which was the first um, sort of uh, solo show, it was the first play about a South Asian Muslim family um, written by a South Asian Muslim uh, to be produced uh, in the mainstream New York theater world. And so I did that, that really, uh, we, we got a lot, we, you know, we got like a lot of awards and stuff and then did that around the world and then launched my career. I ended up uh, doing TV and movies and stuff and then ended up on The Daily Show uh, with Jon Stewart uh, which was a, uh, another huge step for me uh, in terms of, and it was right after um, I got on this Daily Show in 2006, which was uh, right when the Iraq War had had sort of it was was in full swing, and uh, and so it was a great time to uh, to be a Muslim. Um, <laughs> it was not like today. I feel like we're kind of forgotten now. The pandemic and you know and Me Too, we kind of got like shoved aside. Um, so, but, you know, it's, uh, it's all about, yeah, so, and back then, it was, we were front and center, uh, as the demons, and so, um, uh, 
you know, and, 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 and so I was doing that, I, and, and it was a great place to sort of cultivate, uh, you know, you talk about satire uh, and things, you know, and, it, and, I, and I just want to say, I think it's sad today, actually, because a lot of, I feel like nobody wants to do satire anymore, not really, like, uh, you know, I see a lot of friends of mine who are amazing writers who are writing really great sat satirical political stuff, and, and a lot of the big Disney's and, and, and Netflix's of the world are not really interested in doing it. It's very blue sky now. It's all like make people feel happy because we just went through a pandemic. Uh, and so nobody really wants to speak truth to power anymore or, or not as much as they used to. Um, but anyway, then I got The Daily Show and then um, uh, and then after I was there for ten years, and then have, and then I produced a film. Actually, thank you. Um, <laughs> I just I just needed a job. It's not really applause worthy. <laughs> I just <laughs> uh, it was a paycheck. Um, so <laughs> congratulations for not getting fired. I guess that's good. Um, but I then I ended up making a movie. I wrote this movie called Today's Special uh, about an Indi a Muslim family in an in uh, that owned an Indian restaurant in Jackson Heights, Queens, and. Um, it was based on uh, Sakina's restaurant, and we turned it into a film. It came out in 2010. Uh, it's available somewhere, all over the, uh, somewhere online. Um, and and uh, and it was the first ever sort of uh, movie about a, a Muslim family that didn't have uh, anything to do because this was like also 2010. I was still getting scripts where every Muslim was a terrorist, and 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 you know there was like the towers were still falling in the background while you had two Muslims, like, you know, conspiring in the foreground and then the tower. And I was like, well, it's 10 years now. Can we stop with the towers falling? And and so it was, this was, and I remember there was a scene in that, in that movie that I really insisted the director not put any music under. And it was the father and the son praying namaz. And, and they're just, and it was a two and a half minute scene of just these two men, a father and a son, praying namaz and there was no dialogue there was no music no nothing underneath it and i was very proud of that scene because it sort of for me and it was something i wanted to put into the world which is like watching an american audience just have to watch two muslim men praying and it not be about anything other than just the fact that they are two men praying and it wasn't about blowing anything up or killing anyone or or any kind of agenda it was just the agenda of prayer um anyway so and then i ended up doing a lot of tv and stuff and now i'm on evil which is, um, you know, uh, on Paramount Plus, and very excited to be playing an atheist, um, <laughs> uh, who, who who comes from a Muslim family, but has rejected Islam and all religions, and uh, and is a scientist. So I guess I've come full circle. Anyway, on to. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Okay, Hicham, and I should say, let's maybe try to keep remarks to about a minute or yeah, two. Yeah, sorry. You know, right. just saying. Should have said that earlier. Um, yeah. Well, my journey has been quite different to 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 the stage and TV and film. Uh, born and raised in Harlem, oldest of five. Uh, my father was uh, Imam, a student of Malcolm X, and, and a sheikh. So uh, early on, uh, from birth, I was taught the importance of of being African American, of being Muslim and it being like this double-layered cake of obstacles uh, as I move throughout life. And I think uh, in my time in the Marine Corps, corrections, the fire department, uh, the common denominator that just kept coming up was being Muslim and African-American. And being in the fire department, well, being in the Marine Corps when Desert Storm happened was an issue. Uh, being in the fire department when 9-11 happened was an issue. I was in the fire, you know, 
on a job for six or seven years, 9-11 happens, and now everybody looks at me like I'm the problem. Um, so even after I got out of the Marine Corps, went into TV and film, and landed this show, The Blacklist, um, I was excited because it was like, oh, this ex-freedom fighter, this African, this Muslim. And I had no lines for the audition. It was all improv. So I just basically took all of my childhood experiences and put it on Dembe. Um, I was only supposed to do one episode that turned into two episodes to three to four to now we're going on ten seasons. And around the fourth or fifth seasons, it just dawned on me that we needed to show this Muslim's character's conflicts, his morals, his values, his life, um, and him practicing his, his Islam. Um, lucky for me, the producers, the writers, the creators were open to it. And we had a lot of conversations about what that looked like. So in season one, episode nine, I got to do Surto Iklas outside of this box with Raymond. And for me, it was just a very proud moment, being Muslim, being African-American, and, and doing a scene that, like the brother said, where I was reciting a prayer, and I wasn't shooting anybody, killing anybody. I was just actually preparing to die uh, in an honorable way. Um, and that just had a profound impact, I believe, on the audience. Um, I, I got many messages about um, the, the portrayal of this Muslim character. And I was excited about just where it went. We got to show conversations with the imam, the conflicts, the discussions. And um, I've been truly blessed with it. I've, I've had some other auditions and other experiences where it wasn't accepted. Um, and that was, you know, troubling, but it's something that I've been used to. As I said, I experienced this all throughout my career in my other professions. So the blacklist has been um, um, a gem for me, and, I, and I'm excited about exploring all of the other possibilities of just showing what Muslim life is in, in everyday, everyday times. Why, oh why, did I have to follow all these amazing people? <laughs> Um, my name is Oba Mohammed, uh, born and raised in New York City. Uh, I am the first kid of Somali Muslim immigrant parents, the child of an arranged marriage. Um, but the thing about my family that's a little bit more kind of, I guess I would just to give a sense of it, I grew up in a family that only spoke Somali, but I only spoke English. So I was kind of like the outsider in my home. And the only place I kind of connected to anywhere really except for school was television and film. Um, it was a lot of the reasons why I would sneak out of the house at like eight years old to watch a movie. And my mom would call the cops thinking I was kidnapped, but really I was just kidnapped by like Doc Brown or like, you know, <laughs> you know John McClane. Uh, so, you know, so, you know it, it's not really a surprise that I ended up working in TV and film because it was the one place I felt like I had a home. But as I've gotten older, I realized that, you know, being Somali and a Muslim has kind of taught me a lot of things about being an outsider and talking to audiences about the fact that we're all kind of the same, but we just kind of come from different backgrounds. We're like different seasonings in a spice rack. We all kind of go together. Some of us don't, but you know, a lot of us do. <laughs> uh, but for me, I started out um, basically not knowing how to become a writer or work in film or TV, so I ended up trying to find work as a PA. And I worked my way up through production and then finally made the transition in 2012 into the writer's room. It took a long time. If I had my, you know, if I could say honestly what I think happened was because I was a woman and I wasn't a white male, and I hate to say it like that, but it just took so long to get there that basically when I finally broke into the writer's room, um, 
I just felt like I had made it and <laughs> I had, it was a lot more work. Um, and uh, I learned quite a bit, but um, I got into the ABC writing program and that kind of helped launch me. And then where I really felt at home was on Legends of Tomorrow, which was a ragtag bunch of group of people traveling through time and none of them had the same backgrounds, but they all became a family. And that's kind of like how I tell story. That's kind of how I deal with my relationships and that's kind of how I interact with the world. So, um, but I am not a funny person, so sorry. <laughs> I wish, I wish I could say something I think something we begged really to differ. We begged yeah. to differ, right? I wish I could say something clever, but really my journey has been kind of like, I think everyone else's. We kind of end up at a place, we do the best we can, and then we kind of move forward. Hi, my name is Isabel Abraham, um, and I am also a Somali <laughs> black Muslim woman, but we're not the same person. Um, <laughs> Contrary. <laughs> um, I grew up, like, the first thing I remember is a television in my room. <laughs> we didn't have much, but we definitely had that. And um, I kind of grew up watching TV. It was like my babysitter in a way. Um, so my first love was television first. Um, and then it also evolved into film because I had a cousin who managed a movie theater. And I'd basically go in the mornings and spend all day on the weekends watching all these uh, independent films, and ultimately, when she pr got promoted to go to another movie theater, then it was more mainstream. <laughs> so I, I kind of started there, and in college, um, had great professors who taught us production from start to finish, so really kind of earned my stripes there. And, but ultimately, it was my um, internship on, um, in LA through the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, where I was on a television show, a lifetime television show called Any Day Now, for all summer long. Um, for about three months. See somebody, oh, see, Sue knows the show. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and it was an incredible experience. And that's when I learned, like, I could be on a set for, like, 15, 16, 17, sometimes 18 hours if they were super overtime and love every second of it. And I was like, how can I do more of this? And, you know, I wasn't in computer science or engineering, which is ultimately probably what my family wanted me to do. But I was like, I want to do this in any capacity um, initially and started producing independent film in New York, um, you know, and kind of stepped away from television for a while and ultimately working around the world in, in film, independent film, have now kind of worked my way back into the television world. So now I'm both like in the independent film world but also in the television world and I love every second of it. Um, it's important for me to kind of tell what is represented in my family, nuanced, complicated, you know, stories of people who uh, come from all walks of life. You know, there's billions of Muslims in the world and we're like all walks of life. That should be represented um, on our screens, small and big. And so that's important to me. Um, and that's a passion. And so as I step into more writing and directing, it's always important to me to keep representation first and foremost in all of our facets um, and hopefully continue to do more of that. So this panel is about uh, critical mass. How do we get a critical mass of Muslims in the industry? And if one person wants to tackle this question, let's define it. What, what are we talking about when we say a critical mass? <laughs> I mean, for, for me, I want to be able to make a create a television show and be able to staff it with Muslim writers who have experience and, and for it not to be difficult. And when, when we made Little Mosque on the Prairie, it was me and like 10 white guys. <laughs> and it I'm like, really? Like, 
that was it. I had to take these 10 white guys to the mosque on field trips <laughs> to the community so they could understand who we were. And there was like no one. I couldn't draw on anyone. And I called a friend of mine in Winnipeg who was a stand-up comedian, Saadia Durrani, and I go, listen, you got to help me. I cannot be the only brown person on, on, writing on a show about brown people. Like, this is insane. Like, every idea was coming out of my head and my lived experience. And it was like, two, like you can imagine 20 episodes, and, you and these guys are just looking at you. They have no idea. And, and you're having to give them idea after idea after idea. I remember I would have writers call me in tears going, I've been assigned a script. I have no idea. And I'd have to, like, figure it out. And I was outlining other people's scripts. And, and it was too much pressure to do a whole show and be the only one who had that lived experience. But there was no one I could um, reach out to, because this was 2007, right? There was no one. And so you had to create those opportunities. So I got a friend in, and she was, and she started writing on the show. And that, so now there were two of us. And gradually, over time, I, I noticed that the show gave what a lot of young Muslims said to me for the first time in my life that I'd heard, I'm not going into medicine or science or engineering. I'm going to pick the arts. And, and for the first time, I heard parents who said to me, I'm disappointed my child has chosen science or medicine. And <laughs> I wanted them to go into the arts. And, and I realized that, that, that something had flipped, and we were starting to see more young people going into these fields. And a lot of times, we hear criticism, well, why aren't you hiring more Muslims? Why aren't you hiring more Muslim actors? And I'm like, because we are still in that nascent stage where they are beginning to get the training. They are beginning to move up the ranks. But we don't have huge numbers. I've created a, 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 show, um, a show for CBC called Zarka. It's, it's about a bitter, vindictive Muslim woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm being very conscious to staff it with Muslim writers. I've made Saadia Durrani a co-showrunner because there has to be a succession plan. You need a succession plan on shows where you build showrunners who are the people who take over the show that are people of color, but they have to be trained from the beginning, ground up. And so my idea of a critical mass is I will have, you know, if there's only six writers, they will be six writers of color. They will all know what their roles are, that they are being trained to take over one day when I can't do it, or that they're being trained to create another show, that they will be able to run that show. Because if you don't have, writing television, as, as my fellow panelists will tell you, you need years and years and years of training in the ranks of writing rooms to learn the craft and figure out how to actually do it well. You can't just suddenly create a show and say, I'm going to be the showrunner. Like, it's not that easy. You need to know, you have to have the ability as a writer, and you need that training. So we need people who are staffed in writing rooms who are being trained up the ranks to eventually take over those rooms so that when someone like me or someone like Adil will say, okay, I've created a show, where are the writers? And then she can, she can reach out there and find them in, 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 from, the, from the other writing rooms. I think that the infrastructure, what you're talking about is inf infrastructure. I think that that's what we need to build. And, you know, and, and you, you think about it going off of what you just said, like um, the reason that The Daily Show existed or exists is because there was this thing, there's a newspaper called The Onion. And the reason The Onion exists is because there was something called Harvard Lampoon. And, and you can go back and see like, how it was, how the infrastructure was created for The Daily Show to exist. It goes all the way back to the Harvard Lampoon, and it goes all the, back, all the way back. So, so a lot of it is about creating that infrastructure and, and also our own community of, of like how we, like what you're saying, like parents uh, being excited about their kids going into the arts, into writing, into television, into film, you know, into that, because we're not going to, 
we're not going to have that infrastructure because it does. It, it requires you starting here and then building up and and building the sort of uh, the, the, the 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 larger infrastructure that is it cannot be done by one or two people. It, it, it's done by an entire community. Um, and so I think that's that's uh, you talk about critical mass. I think that's that's the only way to create it because you have to those people have to come from the ground up and then eventually like I have several projects that I'm developing right now. They're all mostly with white people uh, and and you know right because those are the people that have that can show run. Those are the people that can ultimately like you know and 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 you know even just getting a woman is a difficult thing. So getting a Muslim and a brown person, you know what I mean, is, is even, so So it, I think that's what that needs, yeah, that's where yeah, I think we need to. Sorry, and just to chime in, totally agree. And I think that's kind of about disrupting the power structure that exists, you know, so that more of us are in c positions of decision-making, creation, power, so that we can hire and create the diverse rooms and projects that we want, you know? Um, yeah. There's a, there's a stopgap, though. I think that the systems exist, like your, your experience was that there weren't Muslim writers. I counter that and say there were Muslim writers, they just weren't presented to you. I think that the system exists to basically keep people in certain places and I was just going through this experience of like reading a lot of writers and the majority of the ones that we received were not people, it wasn't inclusive, the list wasn't inclusive and we had to fight to get inclusive names and it's a lot of work. And sometimes you don't have the energy to do that because you're fighting a system that exists that has existed for years, decades. And so you actively have to build your network. And that is a lot of work to actually go outside and meet a bunch of writers, actors, you know, behind the scenes people, even trying to crew up a show, a pilot. We were trying to be as diverse as possible and it was near impossible. And I think that to me, I don't believe that they don't exist. I believe that they don't have access. Yeah, I think it also has to be a real effort. And, and I, I would compare it to like what we did in the fire department. So when I joined the, the New York City Fire Department in 1996, uh, there was about 10,000 firefighters. Less than 2% were African American. Um, and there was an uh, organization called the Vulcan Society, which was uh, uh, professional black firefighters. And they took it upon themselves to go out to high schools, street fairs, basketball courts, colleges, uh, military institutions and kind of like beg and teach people of color about the fire department. Mm -hmm. Most, most. I mean, I grew up in New York City. I never saw a black firefighter. So I, it, it didn't dawn on me that I could have that job. So we went around to these high schools and we told these kids about what the fire department entailed, how many days you work, how much money you get, your vacation, what you do. It's not about just fires and dying, car accidents and all of these other type of things. And because of that, uh, and a lawsuit. <laughs> the, <laughs> the the fire department grew from two percent to I think now it's about fifteen percent uh, people of color. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, unfortunately on on Muslim creators, writers, directors, it's kind of also in our laps to go out and recruit people who don't even think of being writers, directors because they don't see Muslim characters, they don't see themselves on TV, so why would I even be interested in that career? So it's on us kind of to go out there and, 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 and kind of teach or beg <laughs> or dangle this carrot and, and entice them to say, look, you can have a career in this profession and this is what it's about. And I think what often happens is that you get, you know, a, a TV show will, will hire like a token brown person or whatever in the in the you know uh, have 
you know, and, and just be like, okay, well, we're representing diversity, or you know, what I mean, this is diversity now, and and and, but what you don't have is you don't have that kind of diversity going through the ranks of 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 how that you know maybe on screen you see, uh, you know, more diversity uh, than we have in decades, but it's really about who's in the writers' rooms and who is who is giving the thumbs up and the thumbs down to a lot of these projects and stuff. So I think that's also really important. Critical mass happens when we stop asking about it. Agree, yeah. So are we talking, are we gonna, I'm just gonna push back one, with one more question, which is, you know, are we looking for a percentage? Are we looking for quotas? Are we looking for a number to hit? Or is it really the diversity within, uh, and that could be a quick answer from anyone. Just so I, we know. I, I want to walk onto a set where the PA, <laughs> one of the couple of PAs, the assistant director or the director, or, 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 or wardrobe or crafty, uh, have people who uh, look like me and who are Muslim, where I'm not just that one person. So I think we reach it when I, when I come onto set and it's not like, Oh, Salaam <laughs> When I come into the set and I'm like, okay, I don't even have to give my salam. It's, 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 uh, it's a given, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, in the past number of, um, in the past year, a number of networks have unveiled plans for off-screen diversity and increased commitment to the development of BIPOC scripts, scripts uh, about underrepresented people. Although this is encouraging, we have not seen the same commitment to green lighting these projects. So how do we help them meet those plans? Do you have $17 million? <laughs> <laughs> we can make one right now. Right. Sorry. I think Who said you're not funny? You're funny. <laughs> what are you talking about? She's so funny. So funny. I think the commitment, you know, there's, there has to be action, not just in hearing and taking the meetings, but in actually green lighting the projects. So the quotas, I mean, perhaps need to be applied to like how many projects are greenlit. You know, this is a business ultimately. We know that, show business. That being said, you know, if you're just having meetings, there's tons of ideas out there. People are pitching, you know, like it's their full-time jobs. But what projects are being greenlit? And that's what has to happen. So maybe that's where the quota needs to be. I think a lot of times what gets bandied about is this idea of, uh, you know, to put it very bluntly, like like white men think that other white men are really talented. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and you know what I mean. Like, uh, he said so it. so white men think other white men are really funny, just like them, and like really, and their stories are really important. You know, um, and and that and 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 that's that's what you're sort of up against, right? Because. Diversity is actually important simply for diversity's sake. And what you find out, what you hear a lot is, it happens with minorities, it happens with women. It ha like, you know, we tried, we, we looked, we just didn't find anybody qualified enough or with experience, we didn't find the right people, you know what I mean? And that's because it's like, in, in, in a writer's room, for example, a bunch of white guys want to work with a other bunch of white guys because they get those guys and they understand them and they sort of speak the same language. They don't want a bunch of like black women in there because those women don't feel like it's part of their DNA, right? So we need to start embracing this idea that um, 
diversity is important simply for the sake of diversity because people, you know, I was I was producing a um, uh, a show for Apple with my with my wife and uh, which I recommend nobody do. Um, uh, <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I, I <laughs> with my wife. Don't produce anything with my wife. Um, uh, no, with, with just spouses, in, you know, just sleep together. That's it. Um, uh, no, but we were doing this thing, and we were, it was it was about um, it was a show where I was going to go out and talk to people, and it was about race and different things. They were talking about Confederate statues. It was all about Confederate statues, and and. Uh, and we had this African American, and, and, and I realized, like, because I'm I'm also part of the problem. Um, I realized that, like, I had hired mostly guys in in this room, and so then we were like, we want, and and my wife pointed this out to me, and and uh, and I said, okay, like, then when we brought in this African American woman, and um, she was a comedian, and 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 we were talking to her about something very specific about the African American experience. Um, and and she I remember she said something which none of us in that room would have ever thought of, and it wasn't something so profound. It was just something about her experience and her her lived reality. Um, and and I thought, and, and and we all went, oh my god, like you know. And and suddenly it dawned on me the 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 value of just having a person who had a perspective that was different from all the guys in that room, and that made all the difference. It opened up our, our world a little bit, just right there. So it, it, it is really important for us to embrace voices that we don't necessarily like identify with, you know, um, or, 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 or recognize or, or mirror back to us, you know, um, in comedy you see it a lot, like they're not, they're not funny, you know, and it's like, yeah, they're not funny to you, because that's not the kind of humor that you gravitate towards because you're white or you're male or whatever it is, you know, and, and or, uh, or, or you're 50, you know? And so it, it's like <laughs> that, that, that I think is, is important. And it's something that we, we have to be conscious of because it's not left to its own. It's never going to change. It's, it's not ever, because nobody's going to work with people that they always just going to, you know, you just... You know, people are just gonna work with people who look like them and and like get their jokes and think they're really funny. So I think you're funny. You think I'm funny. Oh well, let's work together. You know, that's it. And so that I think is also um, uh, part of the, the the consciousness of it. You know. Kudos to her for saying something because it's. Can you imagine you're in a room full of dudes, one chick, and then all of a sudden you say, "Well, I have an idea," and they all look at you. Right. I would right. I would freeze. It's just like, and I had to work against that feeling. So it's like. And it's actively in a lot of writers' rooms. It's actively in a lot of sets that you're literally the only one, and it is the most awkward feeling because you know everyone's looking at you. And I've been in multiple shows, and I've heard we we tried a black director, we tried that black actor, we don't we we had a horrible experience, and then that show never hired another black director or actor again. I've seen it. It's like it's almost like you have when you walk into the room, you have the burden of your entire co you're a monolith. Yeah. And so the thing is, you're not seen as an individual, quirky, weird, or whatever. You're seen as like you represent all black people. So if you make a mistake, you make a mistake for all black people, or minority people, or all women, especially if you go into a room where it's all men. Yeah. Right. I, I, and sorry, go no. I was just going to say that you know, and this there's a lot of this tagline like they don't have an ex experience, as you said, and you'll never have experience if you're never hired, <laughs> and you you have to start somewhere, and you have to work your way up. And uh, some people have the opportunity to fail up, and other people only get one shot. Yeah. And that's the challenge. Yeah. 
Right, well, that, that, I mean, the definition of racism is that you are defined by the, 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 the minority, like, of your, of your whatever race group you are, right? So, as, like, 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 white people always get defined by, like, by the majority. Like, like, not everybody's like that, just a few people. Whereas if a Muslim does something, it's like, well, a few do, well, then you must all be like that. It is reverse, right? Terrorism, it's like, right? It's, it's the like, terrorism. It's the terrorism thing, right? right like, so you're all terrorists because five of you are. Where if it's a white guy, you know, you see it all the time. You know, it's like, well, no, it's just some, some crazy white guy. We're all normal. It's just this one guy was crazy, you know? Muslims can never be crazy. Like, we're never just crazy. We're like, if one guy does something bad, then we all are responsible for it, you know? So it's the same idea. It's like, it's like you hire one person, they don't work out. You're like, well, you know, I tried I, I, we tried it. So, it, yeah, and, you know. And that's, that's, and I keep going back to it, that's rampant in the fire department. Yeah. You know, when you had less than 2% firefighters that are black, I would go to my firehouse, I'm the only black guy. So we sit down and we eat, and it happened, co co I think it's kobasa or something. Co I, never, I never heard sausage, of it. Right? It was a sausage, sausage. with sauerkraut, mm. and I'm sitting at the table, I, I, don't, I don't eat this. And it's not me like, what's wrong with you? But when you have six or seven guys in a firehouse of black guys, and there's 35 white guys, and now the six black guys are like, whoa, we don't eat that then it starts to shift a little bit. Like, okay, or maybe all six are crazy, or, or maybe, you know, we might need to change our eating habits a little bit, or, or try what they like to eat. So I, I really think when it's just one person in the room, it's just, it's much harder. It's, it's very difficult. Much harder, 100%, and I agree. Sometimes, then that's when you have to own your voice and say, no, you're gonna listen to me, I have something to say, <laughs> whether you want to or not and get a little bit of a deeper voice sometimes, maybe louder, <laughs> but uh, make sure you're heard, even if it's hard. Have you done that, like the deeper, hello, my name is Oba? Like, <laughs> <laughs> just because then people listen to you, because your voice goes a little high, and they're like, then they just like, go, their eyes glaze over, you see it happening. You're like, okay, well, I'm just going to like this. Yeah, there's a certain pitch yeah, that they just can't hear. Yeah. Hmm. And, and to go back to what you said, Hisham, earlier, where you recited sort of ikhlas, I, watching that, at that moment, didn't know yet if your character was Muslim. And it was that moment where it was like, oh, he's Muslim, and he's saying it correctly. And so there is the bird, shoulder, bird, um, uh, shouldering the burden, um, but also the fact that if you want authentic representations, if you want the real deal when it comes to Muslims, then put a Muslim on the set. Absolutely. Put a Muslim behind the screen. Uh, put, you know, get the, give the Muslim the pen. Right. So, um, and now, you know, um, I'm going to ask the question, how? Okay, so how do we push the industry in helping us create a critical mass? How can we get more opportunities? Um, when, what is the industry missing? How do we know when we've reached our desired outcomes? You don't have to answer all of those questions at one time, but any of those questions, I'm passing the mic to you, Zarka. So, I decided to do something different. I said, instead of going out and trying to get jobs or getting myself in a writing room, I'm like, I have enough experience where I can show around a room, so I'm gonna create my room, and I'm gonna create the show, and I'm just gonna find the money and just do it. I'm gonna circumvent the system. And, and I'm gonna own my own IP, and I'm not going to sell my idea again, like I did with Little Mosque on the Prairie, and I have earned that right now, because I have put the time in. And so in the Canadian system, there's money, there's grant money. So we spent two years getting almost a million dollars together through grants, created a show called Zarka, picked the writing room, hired the writing room, um, and it was, a, because I live in Saskatchewan, which is above North Dakota, we have a 16% indigenous community, 
So if you think Muslims have it bad in television, way yes. worse. And it was important for me, we're gonna have an indigenous, indigenous writer, we have an indigenous director, indigenous producer, and I will hire them because I own it and I get to make the decisions. And so I decided the only way to change the system is sometimes you have to make the system come to you. And then create a product and then CBC gave us the license and we aired it. And I wanted to make it small enough because if I want to own a production company and I want to understand the nuts and bolts of a production company from top to bottom, how does one make a television show? How do you negotiate with an agent? How do you make budgets? How do you do post-production? I wanted to learn every step of it. And you could do it if it's a web series, so it was like six episodes, 10 minutes. But the idea was learn to do it and then make a product and then sell that product to a broadcaster who depends on you for the product and make the system come to you. And then, so, so it's airing right now, and make sure you have a ton of money for um, discoverability so that people can come. Like, uh, so when CBC looks at all the shows that they have on their streaming service, like this one has the highest ratings because we went and got $100,000 in discoverability funds and poured them into ads and Facebook and Instagram. I'm sorry, it's geo-blocked right now to CBC Gem because CO yeah. CBC Gem is Canadian. <laughs> but to me, so then we got together and said we did Where really well. Where did you well. get your money? From, from production grants in Canada. So, we're, so in Canada, it's a different system because we have 30 million people and you have 300 million people. The government tries to protect its cultural sector by giving grants to filmmakers. So almost you have to be almost better at filling out application forms and you have to, and then you have to be in actually making the product, but I hired the right people. And so now we're like thinking second season, make it bigger, make it longer. And find even, you know, staff the rooms with Muslims and indigenous people and get those directors and actors. And I'm like, this is where the power is. Like, if you, the only way you can have the power is to own your own IP and make the system dependent on you. So I'm trying to figure out how do you circumvent the system so you're not always dependent on them to hire you, where, you're, where they're like, oh my God, she made this incredible show and it's the highest rated show, we need the second season. Like, we have to come to her now. So I'm trying to figure out what's the next stage. You know, what, how do we get past always having to beg and, and wanting to be part of it and getting our shows greenlit? How do we get past that? Anyway, I'm trying to figure that out right now. And I, and I mean, I, it's an exciting stage because now I look around myself and I look at this panel, I'm like, there are people I can draw on. There are writers, there are actors that I can reach out and say, hey, can you be on this show? And I will be the one who will be making the, the creative decisions. So for me, that's I, I don't I don't work in Canada. <laughs> Kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Stop. No, I think it's I, I, it's actually a really great uh, model, you know. And I think that there is an audience out there for it, as you have seen. You know, I think that uh, now with the streaming services that we have that go global, you know, you start to see that there this is a whole world. You know, it used to be when I was first starting out, it was basically like, how are you going to appeal to like the guy in Indiana? You know, um, how, how are you going to like make a show for that guy? And now it's how are you going to make a show for like the guy in India or the guy in China? You know, that's that it's sort of so the model has 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 really drastically changed in, I think, in our favor, you know. And, and, and so now it's like I feel like my agents are constantly asking me for product, you know, like like because India is because Netflix has figured out that like, oh, Everyone in America has Netflix now, but everyone, but there's a whole globe out there of people that don't have, you know, and so like, like we want to make content for them. So the time to make content f as a, as a, a person of color, as a Muslim, as a whatever, you know, as, as a non-white American person is, is now, you know, so I think, I think 
to circumvent the system or to even just create the content and just try to put it out there and, and take it to places of these streamers. I think they're looking for it now. So it wasn't the case when I first started out at all. What I've taken away from this whole conversation is I'm marrying a Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> I've decided I want to get grants and own my own IP. I'm telling you, don't work with your spouse. Don't do it. So we have uh, some time for Q&A. Uh, we wanted to open it up. Um, and uh, we have a, well, I'll wait for being uh, flagged. So we'll start, you had your hand up in the back. Um, everything y'all have said has just resonated with me so much because I work in television and film. Um, I work in the production office right now. I'm trying to move my way up. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> And I work here in Austin, so it's super difficult. You try to find people of color to work on your sets, to be in the office, so you're not the only one represented. It's just like how you said, when you walk on a set and you see someone that looks like you, you're like, oh, yes, thank you. What, as, what, do you. what is your advice for people who don't work in LA or New York or Atlanta to try to get that representation here in our towns that are an industry town, but it's still highly Caucasian, and get these people in the rooms, in the production office, to be the producers, to be the UPMs, to be in the writers' rooms. What can we do, people of color that are working? Can I start with one thing? Yeah. Contact MPAC. <laughs> for example, if you're looking for Muslims, um, the MPAC Hollywood Bureau has, um, you know, the. Uh, Variety of folks that it could put you in touch with. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to. Oh cut no, you off. I just. I mean, I th I'm just thinking of like Austin specifically, the university. I think like really doing a lot of outreach. They probably have like a TV film department of some I sort. Do, but and it's still highly. Yes. And then I would like you know I would actually reach out to um, schools. I would put things online. It just it really is like you have to let them know you're there, and it's kind of like making a lot of noise. There's some even. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say this to everyone, but some people, uh, I've traveled for sh film shoots. I've worked in Albuquerque for three or four months. I've worked in New Mexico. I've worked in um, Alabama. I've done shoots all over as production staff. So you could outsource people from different places, but if you want to go into Austin or even Texas, I'm sure there's a huge Hispanic population. I'm sure some of those kids want to do TV and film. They just don't know they have access to it. It's a lot of work, yeah. but you, it, it, if you want to take that on, yeah. then you have to take it on. You have yeah, to dig I've deep. Been. Networking with all of us brown people everywhere, just like, hey, let's all try to get in there. But it's still, we're still a small minority here in town right. um, that work. And a lot, a lot of us have left mm -hmm. to go work where we can get the work. It's and baby steps, back. too. Like, yeah. you should be proud that you're even trying yes. and then keep pushing forward. But, like, at least you're making the effort. A lot of people don't have time or energy to do it. So you should give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, hand up, yes. Yeah, uh, I have a white guy question. <laughs> oh, man. Here, I think you need the mic for this one. Oh, um, I'm, um, okay. <laughs> I'm a, a journalist who's transitioning into screenwriting, and I've spent most of the past 15 years living in, in Cairo and Istanbul, and so a lot of my characters are Muslims, Arabs, and Turks, and I sort of oscillate from being we, the world doesn't need another white guy writing about Muslims, Arabs, and Turks, and but I still don't see these stories on television or in film. And so, 
like how can I like be a better ally or should it, like should I step aside? What is the the role I should play, if any? Yours might get made before mine. <laughs> and then, can you help me hire everybody? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, the thing is, at least you're telling the story. And then if you are blessed to go to series, then you would hire an inclusive staff to help you build the world out. Um, I don't, personally, I know some people don't believe this. I don't believe I should just write Muslim stories. I want to write every story. And the, that's what I think is kind of like the gift of being creative. We're not relegated to one thing. You can be an atheist on a television show and be Muslim. That's the gift of being a creative. I don't think you should just write stories about non-inclusive people or inclusive people. You have the scope to do both. And I think you should be proud to do both. And I think if your story gets made, I'm excited. I just hope that when you're blessed to that part, <coughs> inshallah, that you get uh, a staff a part of this story so that basically you're not telling it from your point of view because even though you've had that experience you haven't lived it. Yes. Yes. Well thank you guys for such an enlightening panel all of you um, but my question was it seems to me the problem largely without it being really said but inferred is it's a trickle down problem with whoever's in charge of green lighting. So what can we do as like audience and fans and whatnot to help you guys get that done quicker? <laughs> I'm not really sure it's it, it, it's all the fault of the people who greenlight it. I mean, I've worked on productions where, let's say, someone's in charge of hiring the PAs, mm -hmm. and they only are, they only hire people that look like them. Um, so that doesn't come from the top. That's you know that's her his or her job, uh, or or the wardrobe department. Like I think um, um, it, it's 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 it just doesn't come from the top. It's, it's all every every you know in in this in this business, there's there's so many positions, and everybody's position you you have kind of the authority to hire and fire who you want. Like I was surprised when uh, I found out that there was a, a Broadway play I think The Temptations, all black cast, hair department was all white, and a friend of mine who was black got to get on the show, but. All of the cast gravitated to her because she knew how to do the hair and the special things, mm -hmm. and she all of a sudden became the problem and was let go. Um, but it just it, it, it just reminded me that this didn't come from the top. The hair hair department is in charge of hiring who they want. Makeup is in charge of hiring who they want. So I think yes, we can blame some of the, the, the top people, but it, it trickles all the way down. Um, and as far as what you can do. Um, I think now there's just the power of the pen, this mm -hmm. Twitter, this social media. Um, how come I don't see this person looking like me? But a lot of the people in the audience don't know who the PIs are, who hair and makeup is, who wardrobe is, who all of that is. But I think on your side, when you see something, and it not only does, doesn't reflect your experience, but you want to see someone else's experience, write about it tweet about it. You can hit up the showrunner on Twitter. I mean, you, you have access to talk to these people. Yeah, I think supporting the content that is being created as, a, as an audience is, is a huge thing. You know, uh, when you have, you know, there are organizations like Gold House, for example, which is a, a large Asian American and South Asian, and uh, you know, which supports and now sort of is more activated in terms of creating um, and, and supporting and, and, and getting the word out about content that is, you know, uh, when you have a show like, even though 
uh, it's not necessarily a Muslim thing, but it was a South Asian. There was Never Have I Ever, which was on Netflix. Yeah. And of course, they had you had Mindy Kaling, who was the the sh the big you know the showrunner in that situation. You know, it was the number one show in the world, right? And that's a huge thing. You have Crazy Rich Asians, which came out, and it was the you know, uh, and so there there is the power of 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 the community getting behind something and and sort of you know. Um, Supporting it and 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 you know, tweeting about it, writing about it. You know, your social media is a huge, a huge tool to support um, the the content. So, I've been flagged multiple times. So I think we can go on for hours um, with this group. Um, I'm hope hopeful that some folks can stick around for a few more questions after the panel if folks have time. Um, but I I just want to uh, make one quick announcement. Um, June 26th, uh, the Muslim Public Affairs Council will be hosting its 30th annual um, Media Awards at where we get to showcase uh, voices of conscience and courage and highlight talent, whether you're behind the screen, in front of the screen, and um, it'll be virtual. So everyone, even in Austin, can access it. Um, and, you know, I, I think this, uh, this is so rich, and I think a takeaway, really, I mean, we're talking about n making narrative change. Why? Because we're sick and tired of other people speaking for us. I mean, I will just say that bluntly. <laughs> it's time for us to speak for ourselves. Um, if you want to see authentic characters, you have to pull in people from that community, whether it's to do their hair right, whether it's to, <laughs> it's true, hair is a big issue for all women, but yes, black hair, black women hair is very specific, my girlfriends tell me. So I, I get that, we, we understand that, and that we're, we're amongst allies, and it's, it's important to really collaborate and find ways to connect so that we push the industry in the right direction, because in the end of the day, um, numbers matter. Um, and that is within, but also the numbers that we reach internationally, because that translates into monetary, <laughs> different kind of numbers, right? Monetary value. So thank you very, very much. Can we give everyone a big round of applause? And I, and assalamu alaikum. <laughs> You have been listening to the TV Campfire podcast hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.